start with a little story here. Uh, once when I was a child, uh, my family uh, went on a vacation to Florida, uh, flew there. Uh, we were running pretty late uh, to the airport because my dad accidentally unplugged his alarm clock, so there we were rushing through the crowded airport, uh, but I was momentarily distracted by a childish need to replace some batteries and a toy that I'd brought with me, and when I looked up, I ended up following a man who looked like my dad from behind uh, through the crowd, but he wasn't. And so while the rest of my family ended up in Florida, I ac ac accidentally actually ended up flying to New York City where I successfully defended a toy store from a pair of burglars with the help of a crazy pigeon lady I met in the park, uh, thus saving Christmas for all the kids at the children's hospital. What? <laughs> you don't believe me? It's possible, it's possible. Some say that wasn't me. Some say that was Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. No one, hey, <laughs> no one knows for sure. I've heard it both ways. But the point is, if you follow the wrong leader, you, you might just end up going to the wrong place. You will end up going to the wrong place. And this relates to our text somehow, because we've been looking at this clash between would-be leaders uh, throughout really all of Luke uh, chapter 20. Uh, the scribes and chief priests, the Pharisees and Sadducees, leaders of the people, have been challenging the authority of Christ. They want people to follow them, not him. But following them leads to destruction. Following him leads to life. It's not so different today, is it? The authority of Christ is still questioned and challenged, sometimes explicitly, sometimes in a subtle way by putting the name of Christ on something that Christ himself would never approve of, whether that means lawlessness or lovelessness, approving of sin or hating your enemies. And that's actually why Mike and I started this sermon series uh, back in the late 1950s or whenever it was, uh, to go back to scripture and to learn or to relearn who Jesus is, what kind of king he is, to be sure that we're following him and not some idol of our own making that maybe looks like him from behind through the crowd but is leading somewhere else a counterfeit christ 
Today's text is really Jesus' closing statement in his series of public debates that we've been seeing with these Jewish leaders. Uh, After the clash with the Sadducees over the resurrection, in the verse right before the one you see on the screen there, it says that they no longer dared to ask him any question. So they're defeated, and they know it, they give up. But Jesus isn't done. (laughs) He has his own challenge for them to answer. Do the scribes really understand the Bible? He asks them a question from Scripture, a biblical challenge. And, And here it is, as Andy just read. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Well, the psalm that he quotes there is Psalm 110. It's what we might call a royal psalm or even a a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Messiah. It expresses hope that God will save his people through his anointed king. Anointed is simply what the word Messiah means, and it's what the word Christ means as well. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ comes from Greek, but they both simply mean anointed, and of course anointed means to be anointed with with oil as a sign that God has chosen that person to be his king. You might remember that God instructed the prophet Samuel to anoint David as as king back in the Old Testament. So the Messiah is the ultimate king, the king of kings, the, the one who finally delivers God's people from exile, from judgment once and for all. And as Jesus says here, they say that the Christ is David's son. Now he's not saying that they're wrong to say this. Uh, They're actually not wrong to say this, but it raises an important question. How can this promised son of David also be David's Lord? Because David, we understand, wrote Psalm 110. And in Psalm 110, David calls this son, this descendant of his, my Lord. Let's look at this confusing statement maybe in the psalm. The Lord said to my Lord... There are two lords that we're referring to. The first lord is God, the one who is doing the saying. If you looked up Psalm 110 in your English Bible, you might notice that the word Lord is in all caps or small caps, I think is the technical term there. That shows you that it renders the Hebrew Yahweh, which is the personal name of God. So it always refers to God himself, never any human Lord when it's in capital letters like that. Uh, But the Jews would never say Yahweh out loud. What they said instead is Adonai, which means my Lord, which is exactly the word used for the second Lord there, uh, my Lord, the one who is being spoken to. So it must have been striking to hear this passage read aloud, which, by the way, is how they would have known this text for the vast majority of Christ's hearers. Um, They didn't have ESV study Bibles at home. They went to the synagogue to hear the Word of God read aloud, huge emphasis on the reading of the Word of God. And so they would have heard, My Lord said to my Lord, My Lord who is God said to my Lord who is the Messiah, Sit at my right hand. And so King David says this, for all his flaws, this is King David, still the original 
good king of Israel, the one whose reign represented the glory days, the establishing of the kingdom uh, as united kingdom growing in power. He's kind of like their George Washington, I guess you could think of it that way, maybe, or, or King Arthur, if you're you know, more of an Anglophile, whatever, loyalist, I don't know. But th- this same King David says the Messiah is his Lord, even though the Messiah is his descendant, his son. I have a son, love him dearly, not calling him my Lord. He would probably really like me to. But as he once told me when I asked him if he could stop shouting at that video game, that ain't happening, toots. (laughs) How can he be both David's son and David's Lord? Scribes and leaders, they don't have any answer for this. They They were looking for a son of David only. They were totally unprepared for and, frankly, uninterested in David's Lord. And by the way, as Jesus says all of this, he is fully conscious of himself as the Christ, the son of David, son of the living God. Back in chapter 9, Peter already confessed that Jesus is the Christ. We know from the other Gospels that Jesus affirmed that good confession. In Luke eleven twenty, Jesus says that in the works that he is doing, the kingdom of God is present. Just before riding into Jerusalem while he was in the area of Jericho, a blind beggar called him the son of David. And, of course, Jesus arranged to ride into Jerusalem on that donkey, right, in fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9. Behold, your king comes to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. So this isn't some purely academic debate about the identity of the Messiah, as if Jesus is just trying to say, ha-ha, I stumped you, I know the Bible better than you do, you can't answer my question. These are fighting words. Jesus is challenging them to look at Scripture and see how it bears witness to his authority, his true authority. It's his final sort of mic drop response to all their little schemes and snares. He's not just some teacher, not even just a descendant of David. His claim to authority is bigger than that. The scribes and priests and Pharisees and Sadducees, they really don't have any idea who it is they're dealing with. But the disciples came to see exactly what Jesus was saying in this verse. Maybe not right away, but surely after they had received the Spirit's empowering to bear witness to Christ. Because this verse that he quotes, again, Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most frequently quoted verse in the New Testament. So in in the teaching of the apostles, this is the verse that they go to the most as they are proclaiming Christ from the Old Testament because they haven't written the New Testament yet, or they're in the process of writing it. So this is their Bible, they're preaching Christ, and their key verse is Psalm 110, verse 1. So we see in Acts chapter 2, when Peter preaches on Pentecost, this is the text he uses at the end to drive home his point. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies our footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. In Acts chapter 7, before Stephen becomes the first martyr, first man killed for preaching Christ, he looks up into heaven and sees Jesus Christ where? At the right hand of God. 1 Peter 3.22 says, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And in context, this is to give us the strength that we need in the face of suffering. 1 Corinthians 15.25, 
Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. So he's made his enemies his footstool. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so because Jesus is Lord, it gives us certain hope of resurrection life. Colossians 3.1 tells us to seek the things above where Christ is. Where? Seated at the right hand of God. Because that's where our life is, hidden with Christ in God. So this message that Christ is the fulfillment of Psalm 110, it fuels our growth in godliness. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by, his word of, by the word of his power, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having, be, having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. The author of Hebrew mentions twice more that Christ Jesus is seated at the right hand of God to deepen our assurance that our sins are completely forgiven, as we sang about earlier. And this emphasis that the early church places on Psalm 110, verse 1, it's still evident whenever we recite the Apostles' Creed. What do we say? We confess that he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. So for the early church, the answer is clear. Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord because he is both God and man. The word become flesh, the radiance of God, of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature. The one who took on flesh and blood so he could take on suffering and death and deliver us from sin and death. For them, this was the heart of the gospel. Who is Jesus? That's why that was their key verse. So back to that day and that confrontation, Jesus' point is that he's not just Israel's king. He's everyone's God, everyone's creator. This isn't some upstart Galilean carpenter come to usurp the scribe's authority to take their place. He gave them that authority. He is calling them to repent of all the ways that they have abused it. Since we have been discussing uh, authority for uh, some time, since that's a major theme of the past several passages, it's worth talking about it a little bit more. You know, we tend to recoil at the word authority. There are many reasons for that. Uh, one reason is sin. Sin means we don't want to obey God. We, in fact, want to be God, and God submits to no higher authority. There's no one above God that he submits to, so we don't want to submit to any higher authority either. We want to play by our own rules. That's something we all have in common. Many have also, in great and small ways, experienced the consequences of this kind of sin in the world. People who want to be God when they are given authority tend to abuse it. It could be anything from political tyranny, workplace toxicity, you name it. And sometimes those who abuse authority do have a lot to say about respecting authority. You know, the trouble today is that everyone's rebelling against authority. All the ills of society would be fixed if people would just submit to their leaders again instead of questioning them. You know, touch not the Lord's anointed, by which I mean me. I don't mean me. I'm just, that's them talking, not me. I don't, okay. We, we also happen to live in a nation, though, with a system of government designed to make it at least a little bit harder for leaders to abuse authority, separation of powers, checks and balances, constitutional protections of individual rights and liberties and so on, and I think, inclined to think that's a good thing. That helpfully accounts for human sinfulness, even though looking around it clearly can't 
counter the effects of sin completely. But be careful here not to let our culture or abuses of authority or any such thing disciple you into thinking that liberty and autonomy is the highest good. The gospel is not be your own dog. The gospel is Jesus is Lord. Uh, Since I mentioned government and and how it uh, influences us, you know, George Washington was a big fan of Micah 4.4. They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid. That's, That's a beautiful picture peace, of shalom, maybe, in the Old Testament uh, usage of that word. But in the context of Micah 4, it's important for us to note that this situation of everyone sitting under his own vine and fig tree and being unafraid, it's not achieved by limiting authority, ultimately, but by restoring ultimate authority. A few verses earlier, it says, out of Zion, Zion is Jerusalem, capital city, seat of God's authority, Out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That's Lord in all caps again. He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. So God's authority is never like sinful human authority. God's law, Paul tells us in Romans 7, I believe, is holy and just and good and good for us. God doesn't use his authority to beat and break us down for his own benefit, own gain. He he has nothing to gain from us, doesn't need anything from us. God's commands call us to be who we were made to be for his own glory. He lovingly gives us instruction for our benefit as well as his glory. Now, God's commands don't always seem good to sinful minds. Of course, our fallen condition Uh, The first way that they need to benefit us is by exposing our sin so that we know that we need the grace of God and Christ Jesus. But still, in and of itself, the Bible is clear that God's law, more broadly God's authority, is in itself good. It's what was lost when we rebelled. We are never truly going to be free until we are fully servants of God and God alone. And that's why the heart of the gospel is the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is Lord. That is good news. He is the good king. And we can sometimes think of the gospel as a message of individual salvation, and that is surely an important key part of it. But individuals are saved because Christ has won the victory for us, is seated at the right hand of God for us. Our lives are hidden there with him. So because Jesus is Lord, he is overcoming all evil, restoring all things, reconciling all things to himself, beginning with us. The glory of God in the face of King Jesus, God's kingdom in Christ. Jesus is Lord. That is central, central to our faith, and that's why we named our church what we did, Christ first. We exist to put Christ first. Well, the verses that follow after this uh, challenge here that Jesus makes, um, they help to illustrate the difference between the good king and sinful human authority, between the one that we should follow and the ones that we must make sure we do not follow. The warning about the scribes and the recognition of the poor widow, they, they give us a vivid illustration of how the good king is different from sinful human authority. So, Jesus says, 
in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus warns his disciples, but he makes sure everybody can hear. <laughs> and, and by the way, so he's making sure that the scribes can hear him, and that means not just the scribes, I think, but I think it's a shortened way of referring to all the leaders we've been talking about. This, this warning really applies to anyone who fits into this pair of shoes, and that could include you and me as well. What are these leaders like? Well, they like to walk around in long robes, special clothes that call attention to their elevated status, calling attention to themselves. People don't do that anymore today, do they? They love greetings in the marketplace. Now, the marketplace, it's not like just going to Walmart. This is a, not just a place to buy and sell, but a venue for, for formal gatherings at times. And the leaders would have their presence announced by some form of, of special greeting to show how special they are compared to the riffraff. Look, it's so-and-so is here. Let's announce it. Uh, they like the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at feasts. Uh, more literal reading might be the first seats and the first places. Probably means when they went to church, everybody wanted to sit up front, by the way. I'm just throwing that out there. Used to be considered the best place that everybody wanted. Now it's the back. I don't know if that's a new covenant thing or what, but just saying. Just going to, you know, whatever. Do, do with that what you will. But, so they make great appearances and uh, gather respect from everyone. But then we read, they also devour widows' houses. What, what is, exactly does that mean? In some way, they're exploiting widows. We don't know for sure how it happened, but we know in our day, there are many people who would take advantage of the elderly. Financial elder abuse is what we call it, when someone gets control of a senior citizen's assets or, or scams them in some way for their own benefit, taking advantage of, of their distress. It may be that these leaders, under pretense of caring for widows as the law required, provided assistance in exchange for taking everything they own for themselves, or maybe a widow in desperation needs to sell her home and they take advantage of her distress by, by cheating her, um, unfair purchase price, whatever the case, they surely had some veneer of respectability over the process, something by which they could say it's just business, perhaps. But it wasn't just business. It was robbery, he says. They devour widows' houses. And so their prayers are just a pretense. They make these long-winded, grandiose prayers for all to hear, not genuine and humble appeals to God, but dramatic monologues designed to impress others with their personal piety. Just like the disciples, we need to be aware of such people, not only because we want to avoid the kind of condemnation that is due that kind of lifestyle, but because it is tempting for us to fall in line with that kind of righteousness, to follow that kind of leader. That's where the Home Alone 2 story fits in. I mean, the, the, the definitely real story from my childhood, that's where it fits in. Self-righteousness is contagious. 
People who work hard to impress others often succeed. It's easy to make a show of righteousness, to, to wear the right clothes, say the right words in the right ways, get to know the right people. So they do impress people. And when everyone is, is saying out loud or just by the, the way they, the, their demeanor, the culture, that those are the really godly people, it's easy to start thinking that must be true. Those are the examples I am going to follow. And so your own faith becomes a matter of acting like the Pharisees, at least in the ways you can see. So we, we put the mask on, right? Suddenly we're no longer here to encourage and admonish one another, to correct and to forgive one another, to love and serve one another, to, to bear one another's burdens and help each other. Suddenly we're here to impress each other. But Jesus is not impressed. He sees through those things. He's not distracted or deceived by the outward things that, that tend to dazzle us. He simply does not judge as we do. And that's clear in the final section here. As Jesus, <clears throat> we read, looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts in the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. So he sees this poor widow, the kind of woman in danger of having her house devoured by the respectable people. Frankly, the kind of woman we'd expect to be a beneficiary of giving at the temple, not a contributor. And she throws in these two copper coins. They're called lepta, which means small or thin. They're the smallest kind of currency that they had. Not sure how much they were worth in today's money because commentaries give different answers, something like an eighth of a penny all the way up to one 128th of a day's pay for a laborer, which might be more like a dollar. I don't know. The 2,000-year temporal shift really wreaks havoc with the exchange rates. But the point is, in any case, it's not much that she put in there. This poor widow, uh, you know, it, it feels like the old days when parents sent their kids to Sunday school with, with a quarter or something to put in the collection basket. You know, it's, it's cute. It makes them feel like they're contributing. But we all know it doesn't make much difference, right? If the kid's Sunday school offering goes down... We're not making a budget crisis. If it goes up, we're not going to hire an associate pastor from it or anything like that. You know, this, this poor widow, it's nice for her to feel involved. But we all know it's the rich people whose contributions keep the temple going. And now I'm remembering when I was a teenager, our youth group had these little drama skits that they recruited me to act in. They always cast me as the Pharisee, which is kind of fun. I got to yell at people, stone her. She must die for her crime. It was Good. We didn't stone the old lady. It was about uh, that was a different different Pharisee, but I, it was less fun having to patronize the sweet little old lady who was our church organist, who played the widow with the two mites. And I guess in this dramatization, you know, there was a Pharisee trying to turn her away. Now, that was definitely me, and not Macaulay Culkin, by the way. He wishes he could have had that role, but <laughs> Christ is not patronizing this poor widow like I had to. This is his true assessment. She put in more than any of them because she gave all that she had to live on. 
the huge donations of the rich were just petty cash to them. Plus, those donations may have come from the devouring of widows' houses anyway. They're not generous, they're showing off. The widow, she's generous, she's giving sacrificially. She gave more than all of them. That's why I want to be a little bit careful how we interpret passages like the parable of the talents or the minas, you know, the ones where servants given five talents and makes five more, and other is given three and makes three more, and we can go off the rails when we start trying to evaluate who's got more talents and, and who's giving more and who's going to maybe get more um, reward or something like that. But the point of the parable of the talents is not to try to be the five-talent guy. The point is don't bury your talent because you think you're the one-talent guy, right? That's where the poor widow shines. We might think of her as a one-talent giver or, in fact, much less than that. She, but she didn't bury it. She gave what she had. And in the eyes of her king, that makes her the five-talent giver in the parable's framework. She wasn't trying to impress anyone or be like the scribes. She just wanted to honor her God. And we are free to live that way when our eyes are fixed on King Jesus. And he's the one we're following, the one we're living to honor and to glorify. Her sacrificial giving is a picture of Christ's love for us. The ESV is probably right to translate that last phrase you see, that she gave all she had to live on. But the Greek sort of idiom behind it would be more literally translated, she gave all her life. That's what Christ offered on our behalf, his own life given for us to cover our sins. She's a picture of the kind of love Christ has given to us kind of king that he is. When we have our eyes fixed on King Jesus, when we're following him, we no longer need to impress one another. We know that God himself loves us and has given us his own son. Christ loves us and has given us his own life. And Christ is king and we are co-heirs with him. So following the authority of the good king frees us to give as he has given. Freely we have received, freely we can give out of all that God has given us, whatever it is, whether the world is impressed by it or not, knowing that our king delights in us, that our God cannot possibly love us more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in Christ Jesus we have a good and gracious king. We confess, as we have before, that we rebel against your authority in many ways. That we don't want a king over us. We want to be our own king our own God. And yet, you have overcome this sin in us by sending your Son, who your word says became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's therefore that he is highly exalted, given the name above every name's 
at his name every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We thank you that we are through your spirit, through the mercy of the cross, able to count ourselves citizens of this good king by grace through faith. As we continue to live in a world where we do see authority is misused and abused and where suffering results, help us to keep our eyes fixed on the good king. Make our hope certain that he ultimately will reign, that everything that opposes his rule will be crushed under his feet. all things reconciled and restored, including ourselves, made the way that we were supposed to be, created to be. As we continue to seek to follow this king, remind us of his goodness, remind us of his love for us, all the ways that he has given to us so that we might be freed to give our lives for your glory. We ask these things in Christ Jesus' name.